Welcome to the Genealogy Gems Podcast. It's a show filled with family history research strategies and techniques, news and entertainment, and inspiration. And I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a Blast from the Past episode. It's been a long time since I reached back into the archives and pulled out a couple of episodes from the original first 20. You may have noticed that in the podcast feed, those first 20 episodes aren't there. Well, I pulled them a couple of years ago. One, because I was getting into so many episodes, I was at first thinking, those weren't my best. Maybe I'll just yank them and uh, every once in a while pull more off the feed. But all of you said you wanted all of the episodes from the beginning. And so I've taken some time over the years, just the last couple of years to remaster um, the content from those first 20 episodes. Back then, it was a much cheaper microphone and um, very quiet. I didn't know about you know, all the noise leveling and sound amplification and all those things that I do today. So they were not as pleasant to listen to. And actually, it can be very difficult to listen to because they're so quiet. Well, I've gone back and grabbed episode 11 and 12. Those have not yet been remastered. We have redone the first 10. And those are available at the Genealogy Gems website. Uh, Just go to podcast. And in the menu, go to Genealogy Gems podcast, and you'll see at the bottom of the list that there are the remastered episodes and which current number episodes they appear in. Okay, they weren't, we didn't go back and label them number two, number three, because we can't go back and alter the feed. We put them into new episodes. And so it might be that, uh, let's see here, if we look at the website, episode 153 is actually episode 10. And it's rebroadcast, remastered. So we are going to pick up where we left off with episode 153. And uh, we are going to take a listen in this episode to episodes 11 and 12. And these were first created, uh, gosh, way back in the beginning, spring of 2007, if you can imagine. And I, I took a look, listen to them, and the content is still really relevant, I think, in many ways. And I know that you guys can certainly, if you run into something that doesn't look or sound quite the same, you know, and you're trying something I'm talking about, go to Google, Google it, or search on our website. But I can give you a heads up on the main things that kind of stuck out to me as we head into episode number 11. And that is we talk about image search in this episode. Now that's certainly a topic that I talk about in detail in lots and lots of step by step detail in my book, The Genealogist Google Toolbox. And that's the second edition, I hadn't even written the first edition yet when I first talked about it back in episode 11. But what I do refer to are web versus image searches. And back in the day, way back in 2007, you would go to google.com and you would have those options right on the main page. Today, that main homepage of google.com is pretty much a big white page with a search box. Sometimes they'll have special artwork uh, representing something that they're uh, celebrating or, or drawing attention to. But you have to actually conduct a search before you can get those options for web, images, video, books, and so on. 
So when I talk about that, just know that you first need to run some type of search. I don't care what you run. You could just um, search on Mark Twain and get those categories up on the screen at the top of the search results. From there, you can then follow along with me as I talk about clicking images and doing an image search. Now, one of the other major differences since back in 2007 when it comes to image search is that nowadays you don't see the text, the website address, um, a reference to cached images right below the image. You actually see a big tiled view of all the different images around the web. So what you would do is click on one of the ones that you're interested in, and then you get to kind of a a highlight page for that particular image. And that will give you buttons to visit the page that it comes from, the full web page, or view the image. And that would pull up on your screen just the image itself. And it would give you the direct um, address for that image to solely that image in your web browser. So if you click view image, then you will have a web address. Now I do mention cached images. And if you follow along carefully with what I'm talking about, it'll actually still work. Go click through to the image that you're interested in, click on view image, and then highlight the address for that particular image. When you go back into regular web Google search, you're then going to paste that address. And when you click through, you go, you're back in web view. Web view is where you're going to find cached images. And I'll have uh, an image in the show notes for you that shows you an example of where you find it as you hear me talk about it. But it, it's still there. It's a little more hidden, but um, they're definitely still there. And again, I do talk about that more in detail in my book. So, but I think the overall concepts are still relevant, still interesting. And um, here is first our blast from the past. This is actually going to be a two-parter. Okay, we're going to do episode 11 and episode 12, because back in the day, they were much shorter. (laughs) They ran about 15 to 20 minutes. So uh, let's launch into episode 11. And then we will transition right into episode 12 of the Genealogy Gems podcast. Welcome to the Genealogy Gems podcast, your place for quick and innovative ways to make the absolute most out of your research time and creative ideas for sharing and displaying your family history. I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. Welcome to this episode of the podcast. We're on episode number 11. We've got lots to cover in this episode, so let's just get right to it. We're going to be discovering pictures from the past with Google. One of the easiest ways to find photographs on the web is with Google.com. You know, the ability to focus your search in Google on images is often overlooked, so I want to go over the basics first. To do a search strictly focused on images, go to Google.com. And of course, you'll find their ever-famous search box at the top of the page. Above the box, reading from left to right, you'll see the word web, and it's bolded. And this means that you, when you enter a word or a phrase at this point on the site, you're going to be searching on everything that's on the web. 
To the right of the word web is the word images. Now click on that and now the word images will be bolded. Now when you enter a word or a phrase, all of your results will come back as images that Google found on the internet. And they'll be displayed in a small photograph or thumbnail format, which is great. These could be photos, drawings, graphics, etc. Now there are several different modes that you can search in with Google, such as videos, news, um, maps and books, etc. But for right now, we're just going to focus on images. Now, if you want to find photographs of specific people, try putting in their, the first and the last name within quotation marks, like in quotations, Mark Twain. And your results are all going to come up with lots of thumbnail images of Mark Twain. And they're coming from different websites all over the internet. If you've got a bit more time or you have a really unusual surname, then you could just enter the name and maybe get started that way. You can also find photos of old items and places from your ancestors' life, such as um, tombstones, buildings, their hometown, the kind of old car that they used to drive. You get the idea. Well, Google is always out there on the web searching, or what they call crawling, for websites to include in the results of your searches. But because Google doesn't crawl for images as often as it does for web pages, you may find that a lot of the images that are coming up in your results have actually moved since the last time that Google checked it. And if you click on the little image in your search results and the page doesn't come up, it can be kind of frustrating. But there may be another way to retrieve that image. Now, before I go any further, I have to tell you that I've run into this problem many times in the past, and that's why I wanted to cover it in the podcast. However, I don't know if maybe all the stars in the universe are in alignment or what, but when I tried to find an example for you today, not one single image I could find had this problem. Now, maybe Google has changed something. I, I know that eBay has upgraded how folks can upload their images to their auctions. And as I recall, many of the images that I had trouble finding in the past actually originated from eBay auctions. But I promised the subscribers of my new Genealogy Gems podcast newsletter that I would cover this technique this month. So I am. And hopefully, if you do happen to run into this problem in the future, you'll have a lot more success with it. So here's how you do it. If the page containing the full image doesn't come up when you click on that thumbnail, here's what you can do. Use your mouse to highlight the URL website address that appears below the thumbnail. Now just press Control C on your keyboard and that's going to copy the address. Now click where it says web up above the Google search box to go back to website searches. Place your cursor in the search box by just clicking inside of it and now press Control V on your keyboard and that will paste that URL address that you had just copied into the search box. Now click the search button. The first result or two that come up should be from that website that had the image that you wanted. So look at the last line of the result for that website and click on the link that says cache, C-A-C-H-E. Now you're looking at a cache version, or in other words, an older version of the website. And hopefully it's a version that was before the image was moved or removed. So by browsing through this version of the website, you will hopefully find that image that you're looking for. Now this may sound like a lot of effort, but the day that you find an image in, in a Google search that you just have to have, I think that you're gonna be really glad to have this little technique 
in your skill toolbox. Speaking of photos, here comes a wonderful way to share them in gem number two. T-H-E-R, Mother, performed by George Wilton Ballard, an Edison recording from 1916. In my book, it's just not enough to find wonderful photos on the internet that help tell the story of my family's past, or to have a box full of old family photos in my closet. It's sort of like the old riddle, you know, if a tree falls in the forest with no one to hear it, then does it make a sound? If a photo's tucked away in a shoebox... Is it really adding to the value of your research? And the answer for me is not in my book. I really believe that family history is meant to be shared. However, I believe wholeheartedly that we, the family historian, are really not the primary customer, if you will. I constantly challenge myself to see my family today as my customer. I want the family's history to be meaningful to them and ignite them in pride and loyalty and reverence for our family. So I'm always trying to come up with new ways to share what I've found in a way that they will enjoy. Since Mother's Day is coming up soon, I thought we'd focus on finding a way to share family history with our moms. Now, if your mom is no longer living, I'll bet that you know a mom that would be thrilled to receive this gift. It's a beautiful decoupage photo plate. Decoupage was a really hot craft for women in the early part of the 20th century, and it's definitely gone through a resurgence in the last decade. 
As I mentioned in a previous episode of the podcast, my mom recently brought me a truckload of family heirlooms. She and my stepdad have taken the plunge to sell their home and travel in a big, beautiful motorhome full-time. Well, when I was preparing for this podcast, I went looking for the decoupage plate that I had made her a couple of years ago for Mother's Day. I assumed it was in one of the boxes that she brought me, but I couldn't find it. So when I asked her about it, she said to me, I gave you your great-grandmother's tea set, your grandmother's china, and pretty much everything else I had, but I didn't give you the plate. I'm keeping that. Well, hearing her say that meant as much to me as that plate probably meant to her. So may I just say, if you pour some love and time into creating this plate, I guarantee it will be treasured. And I know that about half of you out there are men, and you may be thinking that you're not interested in a craft project, but you are interested in your kids, and maybe you have grandkids. Well, kids love crafts. Sitting down with the kids in your life and letting them get sticky with glue is lots of fun for you and for them. And at the same time, doing a project like this together will help them learn about their family history and maybe we'll even uh, generate a few questions to Grandpa about the family. So if you're at your computer, go to the website at www.genealogygems.com to the show notes for this episode, which is number 11, to take a look at the plate that I made for my mom. Wasn't she adorable? She was such a cutie patootie. I started by selecting photos that told the story of her childhood. So at the top is a photo of the house that her parents built the year that she was born. And going clockwise around the plate, the next photo is her as a baby, and then as a toddler in her crib with her favorite teddy bear, and then as a preschooler in the coat and the hat that her mother made for her. In the center is my favorite childhood photo of her, probably just before she entered kindergarten. I'd love that it's close up, her big brown eyes are easy to see, and the dainty little bows in her hair. The design of the plate is really very simple, and it's very focused on its subject matter, my mom. The photos are glued from behind so that they show through the glass plate, and I painted the back of it black, which kind of seemed appropriate for the black and white photos that I use, but you could paint it gold or any color that you want. So let's get started making this modern family heirloom. Now the supplies you need are really simple and inexpensive. You need a clear glass plate with a smooth finish, and you can usually buy these at craft stores or discount stores very cheap. You know, maybe a dollar each. I got mine at a kitchenware factory outlet. Make sure you've cleaned it very well before you begin and that it's completely dry. You'll need a sponge craft brush, um, a jar of decoupage glue. I think Mod Podge is, is one brand. You'll need some good, fine paper cutting scissors. And actually, I found that cuticle scissors worked really well because they gave me a lot of control and very small cuts. And you'll want some paint. Um, choose a color that you'll want to use for the back. Just a small bottle of acrylic craft paint from the craft store um, would work great and a flat paintbrush. Another option is that you could use some really pretty paper or some tissue and maybe do like a collage type application. It's really up to you. And you'll need a clear brush on acrylic varnish if you want kind of a glossy finish on the back. And of course, a selection of photos that you want to use. Now, personally, I like the monochromatic look, you know, either all color or all black and white, but you can do whatever looks good to you. And you can also use other images that complement the photos. 
But for me, I felt like there was really so little room, and I really wanted every inch to highlight my mom. You need to make color copies of the photos. Now, you can scan them, and you can print them out on paper, or you can take them to your copy center and have them color copy them. But we don't want to work with the originals. Whether you're using color or black and white, you will want them color copied because that way you'll get the best quality and the, the truest image. And remember that you can also play around with sizing the photos. They don't have to be in the original size that you have. So play with that and get them the way that you want them. While I fit just five pictures on my mom's plate, they are all large enough to be seen clearly, even at a distance, when the plate's hanging on the wall. So keep that in mind when you're picking your, your photos. Now we're going to just play with the layout of your design to fit the plate. Keep in mind that the plate likely has some slight curvature to it, and so you don't want to just turn it upside down and draw a circle around it because your design actually won't end up quite big enough. So you're going to want to piece one at a time each photo and lay it up behind the glass and really make sure that it all fits together. Cut your copies a little larger than the area that they're going to cover. Also, if you want to add any words to the plate, you could do that now's the time. You can draw them directly on the color copy, or you can print them out and kind of cut them to fit. But in my case, I kind of felt like a picture was worth a thousand words, and I really didn't really need any words on there. When applying the cutouts, you're going to be working, as I said, in reverse. So the first image placed on the back of the plate facing towards you will be in the foreground of the design when it's viewed from the front of the plate. So start applying the decoupage medium, the glue, um, to the most prominent image towards the front and work your way back, if you will. You glue the edges very firmly to the glass, that's important, and turn the plate over to check the placement of the images as you go. Put a nice even coat of glue on the photo on the side that you want to see in, and don't worry about brush strokes because it's going to dry clear. But just be a little careful not to go over it too many times because occasionally the, the ink can run or it can smear and you don't want that. So place the image face down on the back of the plate and spread the glue over the back of the photo as well. And then turn the plate around so that you can see the image from the front and work out the air bubbles from behind. You could even try using a piece of wax paper over the photo and maybe use a little roller uh, or something just to kind of smooth it out and make sure you're getting all the air bubbles out. But you know, I just used my fingers and that worked great. So keep turning the plate back over and checking the results. And continue placing the images on until the entire plate is covered. And now you just need to let it dry. Best thing to do is just turn it upside down on top of a, a glass and um, let it just sit there and not be touched and it, it will dry. Probably about 24 hours. Now you're ready to decorate the back of the plate. You can use painter's tape if you don't trust yourself with a paintbrush and tape off the edges so that as you're painting, it won't bleed over to the front. And now just apply your acrylic paint to the back of the plate and let that dry. You could apply a second coat if you feel like you need it. You could even do a sponge technique with a second color if you wanted to, which would be kind of pretty, and then let all that dry. And finally, if you want a glossy finish on the back, you just apply that acrylic varnish and let that dry. Now you've got a beautiful family heirloom that I guarantee the recipient is going to enjoy. And they're going to know that you really put your heart into it. So have fun with it. Well, that's it for this edition of the Genealogy Gems podcast. Hey, if you haven't signed up for the 
free Genealogy Gems newsletter, now's the time. Go to the website and the link is clearly marked. The newsletter is really an important companion piece to the podcast, and I don't want you to miss anything. So just go to www.genealogygems.com and click on the link, and you can sign up. And as always, you can email me at genealogygemspodcast at gmail.com with comments and questions, suggestions about the podcast. I'm a firm believer in taking responsibility for the life and future of my genealogy data. So instead of just uploading my information only onto someone else's genealogy website, I enter it into my master database on my computer into the premier genealogy software program. It's Roots Magic at rootsmagic.com. Genealogy software is Roots Magic's primary focus. It's not just a sideline. And I continue to be really impressed by their free online training videos and all the rich features they add. And here's the latest. Not only can you import a GEDCOM file from another program, but now with the release of RitzMagic 7.1, you can directly import any Family Tree Maker file with everything attached. That's everything attached. In fact, Roots Magic can import a bigger variety of older Family Tree Maker files than any single version of Family Tree Maker itself. It's just one more way that Roots Magic has been reaching out to the genealogy community and helping them care for their most precious data, their Family Tree. And there's even more to look forward to this year because Roots Magic has announced an agreement with Ancestry. And later this year, they're going to be able to synchronize your family tree with Ancestry the same way that Family Tree Maker did. There's never been a better time to try or switch to Roots Magic. Head to rootsmagic.com and download the free Roots Magic Essentials today. You're going to love it. That's rootsmagic.com. You know, now that I've moved to Texas and what they lovingly call Tornado Alley, I'm more aware than ever that if anything ever happened to my genealogy files, I would be devastated. And boy, have my files expanded since I started this research at the ripe old age of eight years old. As genealogists, we don't just have paper files anymore, but we also have digital files like our genealogy database and precious old photos that we've spent hours scanning no matter where we upload our family tree or anything else relating to our family history on the web, the responsibility for the total safety and security of our files lies with us. That's why I'm so proud to announce that Backblaze is now the official backup of Lisa Louise Cook and Genealogy Gems. For the past few years, I've been researching and I've been test driving backup services and hands down, Backblaze is my choice. It's certainly the easiest service to use. And I love their free app that allows me to access all my files on my smartphone and my tablet. Plus, it backs up everything, including my video files. Yikes, I didn't realize before looking at Backblaze that other services skip over backing up videos. So don't wait another day to ensure that all your files are safe and secure. Back them up like I do with Backblaze. Head to backblaze.com slash Lisa and scroll down. You'll see my smiling face there and a great offer. Just 50 bucks for a year's peace of mind and the best cloud backup around. Go to backblaze.com slash Lisa.
You're listening to one of the crown jewels of podcasting, Lisa Cook, on the Genealogy Gems Podcast. Welcome to the Genealogy Gems Podcast, offering quick and innovative ways to make the most out of your research time and creative ideas for sharing and displaying your family history. I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. Welcome to episode number 12 of the Genealogy Gems podcast. I'm recording this on Mother's Day of 2007. And did you make your mom a decoupage plate like we talked about in episode 11? I hope so. I hope you had fun. My kids spoiled me today, and I loved every minute of it. So um, now I love being able to sit down for a few minutes and talk to you about genealogy. And I'm excited about today's gem because we're going to be going back to school, and it's coming up next. School Days, sung by Byron G. Harlan, Edison Records. Nothing to do, Nelly, darling. Nothing to do, you say. Let's take a trip on memory ship back to the bygone day. That was Byron G. Harlan and Chorus from Edison Records of 1907. And that music is courtesy of the University of Santa Barbara Library. It seemed very appropriate because the months of May and June bring to mind graduations. But graduation doesn't just apply to the high school and college students in your lives today. You know, researching the school years and graduations of your ancestors can be a fascinating part of your research. But before we jump in, here's a little bit of background on the history of high school. The first real publicly supported high school was established in the U.S. in 1824. And even though by 1890 there were 2,500 high schools, the majority of young people ended with an eighth grade education. One of my all-time favorite movies is I Remember Mama, starring Irene Dunn. And there's a really touching scene where the son, Nels, having received his eighth grade education, asks tentatively if he could attend high school, knowing full well that it would be a real financial burden on the family. His mama is thrilled that her son would want to attend high school and get a better education than she had. So the family pulls together to gather the funds to allow him to go. You know, high school wasn't a given at the turn of the 20th century. Uh, If only our kids today could appreciate what a privilege higher education really is. Well, for those ancestors fortunate enough to attend high school, let's find out all we can about those academic years. So get your pen and paper ready, because here come my top 10 tips for finding the graduation gems in your family history. Number one, establish the timeline. Check your genealogy database to find out when your ancestor would have attended school. I'm going to be focusing on high school, but this could just as easily apply to researching the college years. Number two, family papers and books. We always start our research at home. So go through old family papers and books looking for senior calling cards, high school autograph books, journals and diaries, um, senior portraits, And, of course, yearbooks. 
Now, you don't have any of these items? Well, get on the phone and start calling relatives and you might just get lucky. The episode 12 show notes on the Genealogy Gems podcast website has examples for you of some of these items for you to take a look at. Number three, newspapers. You're going to want to search old newspapers for announcements, honor rolls, and other types of articles about end-of-the-year activities. My grandmother attended Chowchilla High School in Chowchilla, California, and in her journals, she mentioned the annual high school play day with a lot of excitement. I did a quick internet search of the California State Library, and it told me that they had Chowchilla newspapers on microfilm. And sure enough, the local paper ran the high school honor roll on the front page, as well as some articles about the play day festivities. The smaller the town, the more likely you're going to find mentions of the local high school in the newspaper. And don't forget the sports section for high school sports. It's easy to search newspapers, but it's not always that easy to find them. So here are some ideas of where to look for historical newspapers. The most well-known source is probably Ancestry.com, which has like 16 million pages from over a thousand different newspapers across the U.S., uh, United Kingdom, and Canada, dating as far back as the 1700s. They do charge for access to the database, but I've personally found that it's really worthwhile. Even though it's a lot of newspapers, though, it doesn't mean that you're going to find what you're looking for. But you can check their list of databases before you decide to subscribe. Next, locate the website for the local public library in the town where your ancestor attended school to see if they have back issues of local newspapers. You can check their online card catalog, or you can send them an email to ask if they have the years that you're interested in, and to see if they'll cooperate with Interlibrary along with your local library. The Library of Congress maintains one of the most extensive newspaper collections in the world, with over 9,000 U.S. newspaper titles. And I'll have the website link in the show notes for you to look, take a look at. And of course, the Family History Center in Salt Lake City has thousands of microfilmed newspapers from around the world, which can be ordered through your local Family History Center. And you can search the Family History Library catalog online for your ancestors' location to find what newspapers they might have before you head out to the center to place an order. From FamilySearch.org, their homepage, just click on the Library tab and then click Family History Library Catalog. I would start searching by place search and searching on the town that you want. So click place and put the town name in the place search box and the county name in the part of search box. For instance, I searched place Chowchilla, part of Madeira, which is the county that Chowchilla is in. This helps a lot if there is more than one town in the U.S. with that name, which there probably is. <laughs> Next, you can check with historical and genealogical societies, which often have newspaper resources for their immediate area, or they're going to know where the newspapers are archived. And a Google search will help you find the society that you're looking for. And many U.S. state archives and libraries serve as depositories for microfilms of newspapers. And that brings us to tip number four. Number four, the state library. I found an excellent list of state libraries across the country at the Wisconsin Department of Education website of all places, and I put a link in the show notes for this episode number 12 on my website so that you can quickly access that page and look for your state. 
While you're exploring the state library holdings, be sure and check to see if they happen to have a photograph of the school. Tip number five, state historical societies. In addition to newspapers, as I mentioned before, state historical societies usually have a wide variety of goodies, often educational in nature. For example, they might have old yearbooks. Try the Google site search that I taught you in episode number one to search the Historical Society's entire website for um, the word yearbook. And again, be sure and check to see if they have any old photos of not only the school, but perhaps they have students or um, class photos, that type of thing. Number six, rootsweb.com. You'll want to check the message board for the county and state that you're looking for, as well as post a message asking if anybody has access to yearbooks or other school information. And here's a tip for searching RootsWeb with Google. Using the Google site search, I typed into the Google search box site, which is S-I-T-E colon rootsweb.com space, and I put the name of the town, space, a plus sign, another space, and the state with a space, plus sign, space, yearbook. So that's site colon rootsweb.com space, and in my case it was Chachilla, space plus space California, space plus space yearbook. And be careful not to add www to your search because then the pages that it looks like have to have that in the URL address, and that's not always the case. So leave that out, and leave a, make sure you leave those spaces between each word and the plus sign. And I think that you'll have some really good luck with that, so give it a try. Number seven, websites focused on yearbooks. There are a couple of websites out there making a heroic attempt to make yearbooks available to researchers. Um, one of them is yearbookgenealogy.com, and I'll have, again, a link for you on the website. The website states that Yearbook Genealogy aims to offer as many yearbooks as possible, and that's a very big goal considering how many schools times how many years there are that are possible. Currently, they have 338 yearbooks in their library, and just 23 of them are fully transcribed. As you can imagine, this is a really ambitious goal, and the odds are pretty low that you're going to find the exact yearbook you're looking for, but it couldn't hurt to check just in case. From their homepage, under the paragraph entitled, Where Do I Start?, click the link to the state directory page to see if they have any yearbooks from the state that you're researching, and then you can go from there. Another website is the National Yearbook Project. It was founded in 2000, and the project is made up of a group of independent webmasters who link together to share historical and genealogical data with researchers. Um, the website offers yearbooks for sale, yearbook want ads, and yearbook lookups. I think this would be a really great website to get involved with, and I'm definitely going to email them and let them know that I will do lookups in the yearbooks that I have. And if we were all doing that, again, I think it would be a great boost to everybody's research. So I encourage you, if you have some old yearbooks in your um, home library, to sign up and let them know that you take a, uh, do a lookup for other people. Tip number eight is the U.S. Gen website. Search the U.S. Gen website for your county. 
and check and see, is there anyone who's willing to do a lookup? Uh, is there a place to leave a posting describing the year and the school that you're looking for? I always like to browse the county sites, but you can do a quick Google site search um, just to be sure that you didn't miss anything. Just go to the U.S. Gen Web um, main site, and you can um, drill down by state and then by county and go from there. Number nine, call the school. If they don't have old yearbooks, they might just be able to put you in touch with a local librarian or historian who does. And there's a very easy and fast way to get the phone number you need on the internet for a high school. Just go to whowhere.com and type in the school name in the business name section, um, such as I typed in Chowchilla High School. You can also narrow down the search by adding the city and the state to your search if you want to. I usually make these calls around 4 o'clock in the afternoon when the kids are gone, but the school office is still open, and I'm sure that they would very much appreciate that. And tip number 10 is eBay. If you do a search on the word yearbook in eBay, you'll get thousands of results. Yearbooks are definitely out there for the finding. So do a search on the school or the town that you're looking for to see if anyone out there is actually selling a yearbook that you need. Be sure and also search for old photographs or postcards of the school. I, I'm sure you'll have some luck there as well. And here's an extra trick that I use. After you do your initial search, from the results page that you get, look to the left side of the page in that yellow box along the left-hand side and click the completed searches box. Now go down a little further and click the show items button. This will bring up auctions that have already ended or completed auctions. Click on an auction of a yearbook from the same school that you want. Now look over when you're inside the listing, look over to the right hand side of the page under meet the seller and click on the seller's ID name. This is going to take you to a page about the seller and their auctions. Now if you look over to the left side, click on the link that says contact member. And this will take you to a page where you can actually send that seller an email. Ask them if they have the school and the year that you're looking for. And if they don't have it, um, ask them to keep an eye out for you and email you if they end up getting one that they're going to be listing. If they have what you want, they can create a buy it now listing that you can purchase immediately through eBay. Now, I'm living proof that this works. I knew that my husband's grandfather had been a music teacher in the 1940s in a small town in Oregon, but that was all I knew. And I did an eBay search, and I found a seller who had, a, who had sold a yearbook of the same school that I was looking for. I emailed him, and he checked his other books from that school from the 1940s, and he found four years where Raymond Cook was listed. And the books included several photographs of him, which I was ecstatic when I was able to purchase them immediately. So don't be afraid to ask. Hey, eBay sellers want to sell, so go ahead and contact them. And if all else fails, you can set up an eBay search to keep a lookout for you for when the yearbook that you're looking for does come available in an, in an auction listing. So go to my website and check out episode number three for instructions on how to create an eBay favorite search. And those are my top 10 tips for finding the graduation gems in your family history. As a special bonus for newsletter subscribers, 
I'll be including a customized form just for researching your ancestors' high school years. It's a great little tool, and I use it all the time, and it's a little thank you gift to my subscriber family. If you haven't subscribed to the newsletter yet, hang on, and I'll tell you how. Our sponsor for this episode is MyHeritage, which has over 70 million members worldwide. If you're serious about making connections in the country where your ancestors once lived, hands down, MyHeritage is the place that you want to be. Post your tree on MyHeritage and start to see the magic as they automatically match it up with other trees, not just with genealogists in the country where you live, but around the world. Trees aren't primary sources, but they are excellent leads. I uploaded a portion of my family tree that contains my German heritage, and that's where I was really hoping to make a breakthrough, and very quickly it happened. I received a message from a distant cousin in Germany. That was my first international cousin contact. But there's more at MyHeritage. Their unique and powerful search system, it's called Record Matches. It constantly calls over 5 billion historical records for your family. It's the only family history interface out there using semantic analysis to search newspaper articles, books, and other free text documents. It is also the first to translate names between languages. Find out what MyHeritage can do to help you grow your family tree. Visit MyHeritage.com. It's free to get started, so there's really no reason to wait. And there are billions of reasons to try it out. Visit MyHeritage.com. I hope you enjoyed this blast from the past. Um, Episodes 11 and 12, the original episodes back from 2007 of the Genealogy Gems podcast. And of course, I mentioned in those episodes, and it is still relevant today, that the best way to stay in touch with me is through our Genealogy Gems newsletter. So head to genealogygems.com. You will find a sign-up box for that newsletter on pretty much every page of the website. And uh, just enter your email address. And each Thursday, we send out our weekly newsletter has all the latest things going on, all the new podcast episodes, new premium content, all that great stuff, as well as lots of tips for your family history research. And occasionally, we'll even send you what we call our, our money saving deals. We keep our eyes peeled. You know, genealogy is not an inexpensive sport, if you will. So when we find great deals on things that we think you'll love, and particularly from from authors and um, sources that we're familiar with and really like, we'll bring those to you also in our newsletter. And we'll also try to tack on an extra discount um, specifically just for you as Genealogy Gems. Hopefully those will come in handy. If not, just read the tips that we include that go along with those newsletters and then look forward to our next weekly newsletter. So again, I hope you enjoyed this blast from the past. And thanks so much for listening, friend. I'll talk to you soon.